Hello, everybody, and welcome to my spoiler review of Spider-Man No Way Home. I would like to stress this is my spoiler review. If you haven't seen the movie, my non-spoiler review is available. If you go back to the video page, there's a little thing up here in the corner. You can click on that. I know a lot of people say, like, well, you know what? I'll watch the spoiler review. If it sounds like I like it, then I want to go to the movie. Just trust me on this one. Go see the movie. It's a really, really, really good movie. Come back, enjoy the spoiler talk after you experience it uh, in the theater. Because this was an awesome theater experience. And I have to say, this was the first sold-out movie I've been to since the pandemic, really. And you know, we go to a lot of movies uh, here in town. And we've been to a lot of movies on these Thursday night preview nights. I'm filming this late Thursday night slash early Friday morning. We've been in preview audience crowds for Venom and lots of different movies movies that have done well at the box office, uh, but none of them have been close to sold out. This one, I think there was maybe 10 free seats in the entire theater, and it was just such a great experience to be back in a theater with a crowd like this and with a movie that was actually working, and this movie works so well, and to hear people laugh when they should laugh and cry when they should cry and gasp when they should gasp the applause the cheers it was a magical movie experience for anybody that says that the theatrical experience is the same as watching it at home i you you're wrong i'm not saying you're wrong on every movie but you are wrong on movies like this because this was a fantastic theatrical experience and a wonderful experience watching this with the crowd. I saw this on Tuesday night uh, as part of a press screening. I went again on Thursday because Mara didn't get to go with me on Tuesday. And so it was great to watch it through her eyes, watch it through the eyes of the crowd. And I'm so glad that I did because there are very few movies I've seen that had this kind of energy. The Force Awakens is one of them. Avengers Endgame is another one. But where you can just tell that this movie has sort of worked a spell over the audience, and it was really good. I mean, I, I guess it is somewhat fitting that this movie would cast a spell over the audience, since it's a movie about casting spells. So I brought a notebook with me, and I said, well, you know, I'm going to jot down some things that I see that I remember for the spoiler review, and by the end of the movie, I'd written about three pages of notes. So strap in, because I've got a lot that I want to talk about. If you got somewhere to go and you haven't subscribed to the audio podcast channel, then you can find all that information down there below and take it, you know, download it, take it with you on the go, because there's so many things that I want to talk about, so many things that I love about this movie, and I think I liked it even more the second time than I did the first time because I, I knew what was coming and I was anticipating certain things and there were certain dots that I was able to connect that we'll talk about um, as we go through this review. And it was so hard to do the non-spoiler review because there were so many things I couldn't even go into. Like I, I didn't want to go into any territory that it seemed like I was going to give away any of the secrets, but so many of the things that I love about this movie deal exclusively with spoilery things. So without further ado, let's jump into the movie. I'll kind of start at the beginning, but I'm going to jump around as we go. And let's talk about some of the great things about Spider-Man No Way Home. There you have it, folks. Conclusive proof that Spider-Man was responsible for the brutal murder of Mysterio. So we open this movie literally at the end of the last movie, Spider-Man Far From Home. We have J. Jonah Jameson broadcasting Spider-Man's secret identity. And one of the shots that I loved was you cut from Jameson in a shot like this to the apartment that he is broadcasting from. You know, this sort of dingy apartment against this green screen. So it looks professional, but then, you know, if you cut out a little bit wider, he's just some guy in a room, which, I mean... Hello, I never thought that I would actually feel sympathetic for J. Jonah Jameson, but now that I think about it, he's just a guy trying to make a living and trying to bring down that menace Spider-Man. Oh, oh my God. 
Oh my God. I did not. I don't, I don't know where that came from. Okay. I'm sorry. Let's keep going. It was great to see JK Simmons. He was able to play again, the comedic part of the J Jonah Jameson thing. The idea that he was selling supplements, daily bugle supplements as his star began to rise. A lot of funny stuff. I, I did kind of expect Jameson to play a more crucial role in this movie. He really is just sort of in the background, but that's not really a problem I have with the film. It's really just more how it was different from the movie that I was expecting, and this movie surprised me in a lot of ways. So we get the return of damage control here. They arrest Peter after his identity is exposed, and it's kind of fitting because we saw damage control very early on in the first MCU Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man Homecoming. The Department of Damage Control will oversee the collection and storage of alien and and other exotic materials. And then it turns out that all of the hashtag shirt sleeve speculation during the interrogation scene with Peter, at least it, it seems, uh, was not accurate about that being Daredevil. But we do very shortly add thereafter get an appearance from Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock. And it's just great to see him back in the mix. I really love the Daredevil TV show. And it seemed like they were all in Netflix movie jail for some reason like they had all just been benched they don't show up in endgame they don't show up anywhere but just having charlie cox back is great i hope that however they work him back in that they don't sand off the rough edges because i liked the rough edges on daredevil and i hope that they're able to go back to that kind of territory again but he also fit well into this film the brick coming through the window which he catches and i love the idea of like this sort of superpower that he's able to show and and i'm a very good lawyer one thing that i did notice is that on the brick somebody had written a message we believe mysterio the believe was misspelled the i and the e were inverted which is kind of a sly kind of poke at the conspiracy theorists but I also noticed that when Peter goes back to school and he meets the faculty, that Coach Wilson, who's played by Hannibal Burris, was openly a conspiracy theorist. And he obviously thought that Spider-Man killed Mysterio. He was not on Peter Parker's side. And it makes me wonder, I mean, he's a conspiracy theorist. Everybody seemed to know where Peter lived. But as a faculty member at school, he would definitely know where Peter lived. He's a gym coach, so he should be in reasonably good shape. Maybe he's got a pretty good arm was Coach Wilson the guy who throws the brick through Peter Parker's apartment window. Just something to think about. Something to think about. A little conspiracy theory of my own. When we talk about the plot of the movie, one thing that I really liked about this film is that Peter is not motivated solely by self-interest, but at the same time, he kind of has to learn what a selfless act is because he goes to Doctor Strange largely not because he doesn't get into MIT, but because he sees the effect that it has on Ned and MJ, and he realizes that him being Spider-Man is hurting the people that he loves. But the whole movie happens because he can't quite make that step to the pure selfless act. He interjects and he says, well, not MJ and not Ned and not Aunt May. And so you have to add all these caveats and the spell goes out of control. And that's why everything good and bad in the movie happens. By the time we get to the end of the film, the only way that Peter can save the world is by going to Doctor Strange and requesting that he specifically wipe the memory of himself from everyone that he knows and loves. And it is a pure selfless act because he's doing this for the benefit of others at great great cost to himself. It's almost like he has great power, but with it comes great responsibility. It's the lesson that every Spider-Man has had to learn in every iteration that we've seen. It's just that it's set up from the beginning of this movie to the end, and it comes full circle, all the way down to the fact that Peter, at the end, chooses 
not to try to tell MJ who he is because he notices that he could potentially be putting her in danger. And that's called character growth. And it's not something that you see in a lot of big budget movies. You see it in the best ones, but you don't see it in a lot of the other ones. And I love that they're devoted to that. This is really a, a strong character building movie for Peter. And I think that Tom Holland did a great job uh, across the board in all of these scenes. When we talk about Doctor Strange, he wasn't in the movie that much. He's suspended above the Grand Canyon for a lot of it. And I've seen a lot of people bring it up as a negative. And, and I will say that he he does really just seem to be there as the inciting incident. And after he's done what he needs to do, you have to get him out of the picture because if he's there the whole time, then it doesn't really make sense. You know, you have to give the spider people uh, some time to breathe and, and give Peter uh, his own movie. You don't want uh, another situation like with Spider-Man Homecoming and it worked for that movie, but like where you have another Avenger kind of hovering over Peter's shoulder. This is so much about Peter becoming his own man, his own Spider-Man. I did think it was funny that because Doctor Strange was blipped away that Wong has now inherited the title of Sorcerer Supreme. It kind of makes sense why he's so forward in Shang-Chi and he's the one that's out there recruiting. I think that that's a great way of turning that dynamic on its head. With the Doctor Strange stuff though, there were some changes from the trailers for the film and I thought it kind of informs a lot of the different ways that Marvel makes movies. The first one is during the Mirror Dimension fight. The visual effects that we see in the finished movie are completely different from what we first saw in that very first trailer. In that trailer, it's all canyon. In the fi in the finished movie, it's, you know, the cityscape and everything else. And I'm guessing that was done for one of two reasons. Number one, I'm sure the visual effects probably weren't done and they just kind of threw on there what they had. But I think it also disguises a little bit that they're having this fight in the mirror dimension. I like the fact that maybe they're hiding some of the visual wonder that this movie has uh, and waiting for the theatrical experience for you to see it. But also, again, I'm sure because it was many months ago, they just weren't quite ready to show what the final versions of those graphics were. There's also a change to one of the lines in the second trailer, Dr. Strange says, Scooby-Doo this crap. Scooby-Doo this crap. I know a couple of magic words myself, starting with the word, please. Please, Scooby-Doo this crap. In the actual movie, he says, Scooby-Doo this shit. I think that this was, again, an alternate version of the scene that they probably shot on the day for things like TV versions or airline versions or whatever, where they just don't want to have to overdub Benedict Cumberbatch, so they just have him shoot two different ways. And then a byproduct of that is you have an alternate version for the trailer. So that's another way that I think they make movies. Really the most curious thing that I would add, if I could ask John Watts a question, I mean, I'd have several, is the motivation for Doctor Strange and how they set up the spell. Because again, in the first trailer, you have Wong specifically saying to Strange, don't cast that spell. And then he says, I won't. Strange, don't cast that spell. It's too dangerous. Fine. I won't. Whereas in the finished film, he basically talks Wong into letting him cast the spell. Wong kind of says, be careful, leave me out of it, I'm gone. And then Strange goes down and they cast the spell and obviously things go wrong. And I wonder if it's that they shot it two different ways because they didn't quite know which way they wanted to do it in the movie. And so they put one in the trailer and ended up using the other in the movie. But I think the other option would be, I wonder if once that first trailer came out, I know that a lot of the fan reaction was that, well, this seems kind of reckless even for Doctor Strange to do. I'm not saying that's necessarily 
necessarily the right thing, but that was a reaction. I wonder if some people agreed, if they saw what the fans said, or some other creators at Marvel said, you know, yeah, maybe we can beef this up a little bit more. And then they went back and reshot Benedict Wong's side of the conversation. It would be a pretty easy thing to do. It's a single shot. You could just put him in front of a green screen. It's an interesting question, and I'm sure that we're going to get some clarification on it at some point. But again, that's the Marvel method. There's a Marvel method of making comics, and there's a Marvel method of making movies. And one of them is that they are tweaking and adjusting all the way up to the last minute. A couple of cool Peter Doctor Strange things that I noticed, uh, one the first time and another one the second time. The thing that I love both times I saw the movie was the idea that Peter defeats Doctor Strange in the mirror dimension because it's fractals and Peter knows geometry and loves math. And I love this because, first of all, it, it answers that question that a lot of people would have, which is how does Spider-Man defeat Doctor Strange on Doctor Strange turf where he's basically supposed to be a god? And I love the fact that it's math because, of course, that's exactly how Peter Parker, not even Spider-Man, that's how Peter Parker would be able to figure this out. So I liked how they did that to where he basically is able to outsmart Doctor Strange instead of outfight him. And then something I didn't notice till the second time, and I think it might be because the IMAX version, the first time I did not see it in IMAX, the second time I saw it in IMAX, the IMAX optimized version has extra head space. So you see more above the character's heads. But when Peter's astral form is knocked out of his body, uh, and he's talking to Doctor Strange, and Strange is trying to get the spell box, and Spider-Man is keeping it away unconsciously, you see above Peter's head, the astral form, these Spider-Sense lines that you see in the comic books. And that that's just really fun to me. That's just a really fun way of bringing something into live action that you couldn't really do. I mean, they were able to do it in things like, you know, in the Spider-Verse because it's animation, it's a different medium, but I love that they figured out a way to do it here. And again, it's very subtle, but it's just another nod to the fans and kind of a way of saying like, listen, we're trying to incorporate these things in a way that makes sense, but also in a way that's just fun for you to watch. So we have this scene where the spell goes wrong and it, it was another example here of why I like to be able to watch a movie twice sometimes if I can, especially a movie that's as full and dense with different things to pay attention to as this one, because I actually had a question the first time that I caught the answer to the second time. Uh, they have this thing that basically says like, well, the, the spell kind of went wonky and we brought over people that knew Peter Parker was Spider-Man into this universe. Part of me was saying like, well, wait a minute, from McGuire's universe, if you've got Doc Ock and you've got Green Goblin, then why isn't Kirsten Dunst MJ here? Uh, and on, on Garfield's side, it's like, well, if you've got Electro and Lizard, then why isn't Gwen here? Because I had mistakenly thought they said that everybody that knew Peter Parker was Spider-Man had come over from those universes. But then on the rewatch, I get the part where Doctor Strange says, well, a few of them squeaked through. So it makes sense that some of them come through from the universes, but they don't all come through. And that's why I like to be able to watch movies a second time, because if I had brought that up in a review, then I'm sure I would have been corrected uh, because I would have gotten that wrong or I would have asked a question that didn't need an answer. Um, and, and it's just an example of, you know, sometimes as, as a critic or as a reviewer, you have the luxury of seeing a movie the second time to sort of process it more. But sometimes you don't. And I was glad in this case that I did because I answered a question that I already had after just one watch of the movie. So the first indication that this movie had a lot more in store than I'd originally thought was the fact that we got to the bridge scene, which we've all seen in the trailers, um, in what seemed like the late first act, although it could have been 45 minutes, it could have been an hour. This movie, even though it's two and a half hours,
hours really flew by. I did not feel the length either time. But the other thing that I was thinking about was I kind of wish I could go into my own uh, alternate dimension where they were able to keep the secrets of this movie. And Tom Holland talked about it a little bit, I think, earlier this week, where he said, well, the original plan was that they were going to set this movie up as a Spider-Man Doctor Strange movie. And then 45 minutes in, all of these people would start showing up and people would absolutely lose their minds. And I think maybe 20 years ago, maybe you could have been able to do that. But we live in a different time now. And we live in a time where the trades are all competing with each other to see who can get the best scoops. And then you have YouTube channels and other places that are trying to compete with the trades to get those scoops. And so, so many of these surprises are sniffed out or reported on or leaked or whatever for days or weeks or months before a movie comes out. I remember hearing that Electro was coming back for this movie, I think like last year in the middle of the year. And it's just such a bummer that you can't logistically keep these things secret anymore because as great as it was to experience these characters coming back, 75% of them we knew beyond an absolute doubt that they were coming back. And the other 25%, we were all pretty sure. Imagine seeing this movie where you had no idea there were any returning characters and how just mind-blowing that would have been. Um, I almost wish I could sort of get the memory wipe and just go into this movie fresh without knowing anything and just have had my mind completely blown by this. Hello, Peter. Regardless, though, we do get to the bridge scene. We do get to the return of Doc Ock. And one thing that I noticed as far as technology goes is that the de-aging work in this film was flawless. I've been kind of hard on de-aging because a lot of times I don't think it looks great. I think it looks really fakey. It takes me out of a movie. But there was not one shot where I said, oh... That looks touched up. I can see the effects. And I think this is really the first movie where they've used this technology where all the way through, I never questioned it. One actor, though, that I'm pretty sure they didn't bring back for any actual physical shooting was Thomas Hayden Church. He obviously did the voice of Sandman, but he himself is sand through pretty much the entire film. And then the shots at the end of the movie where he's cured, I'm pretty sure those were just stolen shots from Spider-Man 3. So that's another question I would have would be, you know, did Tom... Thomas Hayden Church come in? Did he do mocap? Was that purely VFX with just voice work? Because you brought in so many of the other villains, I wonder if that was a choice on his part or if they just said creatively, you know, I think we're just going to go with the sand look and we just need you to come in and do the voice for this character. I'm going to be very curious to see what people think about the Doc Ock storyline in this film because the first time I saw the movie, I was a little on the fence for it for just a little bit. I, I thought that it took a comic turn pretty quickly, but then when I saw what they had planned for the character, the second time through, I was on board. I like the fact that, you know, he takes this nanotechnology from Peter's suit. And, and again, a cheaper movie would have just had him say, and now I'm a more powerful Doc Ock. And then they would have just, you know, had another fight sequence. I like the fact that this enables Peter to take control over the arms and it gives a degree of control over Doc Ock, and he's able to bring him in basically as a prisoner because you need to have him in that prison, but you also have a lot of other stuff that you have to get to, but it also starts a redemption arc because I think he's the most tragic of all of them. I mean, he is in a way redeemed at the end of Spider-Man 2, but it's at the cost of his own life. It was my dream. Sometimes to do what's right, we have to be steady and give up the thing we want the most. 
Here he gets a chance to redeem himself and then you would think go back to his universe and be able to live a productive life. And that's something else with these villains. I think you're rooting for them to be cured. And that's because they're not just these guys that drop from the sky with 20 minutes left and cackle and say some lines and then you just have one big fight scene and they all go away. You're actually humanizing them. And I think a lot of that credit has to come down to the screenplay for this film. In my non-spoiler review, I said that this is not a movie about the who and the what, it's about the why and the how. And what I meant by that is this is not a movie that's driven by who's in the movie and what do they do? Because those are things that can be spoiled and have been spoiled by a bunch of a-holes on social media and elsewhere uh, very easily. And if that's all that the movie had to offer, then it would be a very movie, easy movie to actually spoil for somebody. But when I say it's about the how and the why, it's because the real surprises for me and the real impactful things for me in this movie were how these characters impacted Spider-Man and why they're in this movie. And seeing all of that unfold really worked. And all of these villains had a how and a why for the most part. We'll talk about one that I wasn't quite sure about in just a second. But they had a reason to be there. It wasn't just to cash in on their appearance uh, and, and get a clap out of the audience and do a third act fight scene and then go away. There's an actual story reason for them to exist. And they all are there to contribute to the development of the movie's central character, which is Tom Holland's Peter Parker, which they never lose track of in the film. And that's another thing that I think is so important. This movie isn't just about a bunch of Spider-Men. It is about Tom Holland's Spider-Man. And that's another reason why it really works. I think Jamie Foxx's Electro was a great combination of the Electro that we already knew, but also a chance to inject some of Jamie Foxx's personality in it, particularly his comic sensibilities. And again, it doesn't seem jarring because you've written into the script a reason for this. Electro is in a new universe. It's a different kind of power. It makes him feel different. It makes him get his body back. They're able to explain it away, but not get mired down in the reasons why. And I liked Jamie Foxx in this movie. He had a lot of great lines. I loved Loved that scene between him and Sandman where they're talking about, oh, I fell into electric eels. Oh, well, I fell into a big collider. And Jamie Foxx has the line of, you know, oh, you got to be careful where you fall. That's a great moment between those two characters and a great way for screenwriters, again, to take advantage of having these characters in a movie to do more than just yell at Spider-Man, but to actually compare notes about their lives. I also like the way that they use Sandman, at least in the first half of the film. I like that they bring in the version of Sandman after the events of Spider-Man 3 where he has already made peace with Peter Parker. I'm not asking you to forgive me. I just want you to understand. He's an ally to him, really, at the beginning, so they don't have to just fight each other, but he actually helps him to apprehend Electro. But at the same time, when he switches sides, you understand why, because he's really only motivated by getting back home to see his daughter, and that matches with what we know of his character. That's always been his primary motivation. And so him switching sides wasn't necessarily, to me, uh, something out of convenience. It was more him saying, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get home to my daughter, and I was going with you because you wanted to help everybody but this is all going bad so 
I'm out of here because your way's not working and I'm gonna go with the people that just are able to get me home. From a story standpoint, he also serves a very important purpose, which is that he is the link that is able to tell both Green Goblin and Doc Ock that they both died fighting Spider-Man, that Spider-Man was directly or indirectly responsible for their death. He's the person that's able to reveal the crucial information that sets Spider-Man on a course of saying, well, I'm not gonna send these guys back to die. I want to save them. I I want to help them and that's what causes everything in this movie to happen good and bad and it's an example of writers again understanding why a character is there and smartly using him in order to move the plot forward but not in a way that's just a plot convenience if there was one villain that i think was really just kind of there it was the lizard uh reese fawn's character was not the most popular spider-man character to be honest he didn't make a huge impact on me in the amazing spider-man and i think he was really here just to be a menace I mean, he's got some really strong lines when they're all down there in the dungeon, but really he just needs to be someone for them to fight. And I think it's a glimpse of the movie that could have been made where all the characters were that. They were just there and they fight Spider-Man and then they go away at the end of the film. The villain that I really want to talk about is Green Goblin. And can we just have a moment of appreciation for Willem Dafoe? Because he is so good. Not just in this movie, but in every movie as Green Goblin. Tell me how! The heart, Osborne. First, we attack his heart. And one of the smartest things I think they did was to have him break that mask so early on because Willem Dafoe facially is able to be so much more menacing than that mask alone is able to convey. And I love that we get his facial performance throughout almost this entire film. But the thing that's also great is that we spend so much time, and I, and I mentioned how important it is that you want them to cure these bad guys and not just beat them, you spend so much time with Norman and you forget just how scared and lost Norman is. And here we have a Norman that's even more lost uh, because he's in this universe. He doesn't know what's going on already. And now he's in an even more alien world. And again, plot wise, he's the person that inspires May to really go to Peter and say, look at this person. You're going to condemn this person to death. You have to get this point across or the movie doesn't really work of Peter learning this lesson of Everyone is human, and your job is not to play judge, jury, and executioner. Your job is to be a hero. Your job is to save people. Your job is to help people. That's what you do. If you don't get that message across, the movie doesn't work. But at the same time, the dude is just terrifying as Goblin, and we see that turn, that smile, the glint in the eyes. It's like two different people in the same body. Willem Dafoe is so great. He's so great that I will forgive the fact that they just couldn't resist doing the, you know, I'm something of a scientist myself meme line. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. He's so good at being the lethal villain that Spider-Man needs that I will forgive them that moment of levity, that, that moment of self-indulgence, because so much of everything else works. And this brings us to Aunt May, which is actually my favorite thing that they did in the film. Not that I hate Marissa Tomei or anything, but just story-wise, I was absolutely blown away with what they did here. Because first of all, when it comes to Green Goblin, he is a character that has cast a shadow. And it's one of the things I loved about the original Gwen Stacy storyline was that long after Gwen was dead, Goblin was still that villain that Peter feared more than everyone else because he took away the person that he loved more than anyone else in the world. And now, even though this 
this goblin is not in Peter's universe anymore at the end of this movie. He is still kind of casting a shadow and will over Peter for the rest of his life because he took away Aunt May. I think that this was actually a really brilliant way of turning the entire idea of what this MCU Spider-Man is on its head because I had always assumed that the whole Uncle Ben thing had already happened. When we meet him in Civil War, Peter kind of makes some allusion to bad things happening, and I think that because we're all Spider-Man fans and there's no Uncle Ben there, and he is gone, I was under the impression that we just missed Uncle Ben dying along with the spider bite, but the thing that's important to understand about an origin story, and especially Spider-Man's origin story, is that his origin story isn't getting bitten by the spider. That's what gives him his powers, but the origin of Spider-Man is his relationship with Uncle Ben. But I never for one second thought that they would make Aunt May Peter's Uncle Ben here. In retrospect, though, it makes total sense. And one thing that I like about this move here is that Cliff Robertson is great. Martin Sheen is great. They were both really strong in the role as Uncle Ben. But both of them had, what, maybe 10, 15 minutes of screen time before they bought it. And we knew that it was going to happen because... That's what happens to Uncle Ben. He dies. And we certainly empathize with Peter because he lost Uncle Ben, but we're not surprised by it, really. Here, we have a character in Aunt May. First of all, we've seen her through several movies now. We've seen their interaction. We know their relationship across several different movies, across so many different things that have happened to Peter. We fully understand just how important she is to Peter's life. She is indispensable. And then they kill her. And not only is the rug pulled out from under Peter Parker in that moment, the rug is pulled under from us too because now we feel like in a way that we've lost a character that we love or a character that we care about. And so I found myself empathizing with Peter and the death of Aunt May here in a way that I never did in any of the other movies with Uncle Ben because you know what's going to happen. Giving the with great power line to Marissa Tomei, which by the way, she did a great job selling that because that is a well-worn line, uh, but the fact that you give it to her and she makes it feel fresh and feel new maybe should have been an indicator that she wasn't going to make it. But even at that point, even if she got knocked down and then got back up, I was like, oh, well, she's going to be fine. And then when I understood that she was going to die, I completely recontextualized this idea of Spider-Man. It's not that we missed his origin story. We just missed the spider bite. This whole thing leading up to this movie has been the origin story of this Spider-Man. This has all been proto-Spider-Man. And at the end of this film, we get the fully developed character of Spider-Man. And we're going to get that character, hopefully, going forward. Maybe everybody else saw it coming or they weren't as impressed with it as I was. But it's so hard to surprise me in a Spider-Man movie, especially when it comes to an origin story, because I thought it was done, and, and I figured, well, if you're gonna do it, I'm gonna see it coming. And yet, they were able to surprise me and tell this story in, I think, the most affecting way that it's been told yet. Also, Marissa Tomei played that last scene beautifully as Aunt May, and it was a combination of the directing and the writing and the acting, but the way that she played it where she didn't even know that she was dying. She didn't really know what was happening. She honestly thought that she had just kind of lost her breath. She was kind of confused as to what was going on. And you have Peter cradling her, fully aware of what's happening. And Tom Holland played that scene so well. I mean, this was the best performance that Tom Holland's put in in a Spider-Man movie, I think, easily. 
of all the movies, not just Spider-Man movies, but any of the movies. But this scene was also a great parallel to the Infinity War scene where Tom Holland is getting dusted and he's scared and he's on his back and he's kind of being cradled by Tony Stark who understands what's going on and has to console him. And I think it's so smart. It's very subtle. But again, it's a way of showing that this character has come full circle and he's kind of moving into that Tony Stark role of being the developed adult, the experience in the room. So now we get to the big reveal, the one that everyone thought they probably knew was coming, but yet I think that a lot of people were still waiting to see. And this was one of those theater moments that I, you just, you can't replicate because when Ned opened the portal, uh, you could tell kind of the levels of different Spider-Man fans or how eagle-eyed people were because the second that um, Garfield turned around, some people immediately noticed the eyes on the mask and how big they were. So there was initial kind of like a <gasps> gasp that goes through the audience. And then when he gets closer, there was a sort of a collective like <gasps> gasp that goes through the audience again. And he comes through the portal and people see the costume and there's an initial round of applause and, and, and some cheers. When Garfield popped that mask off, it was like being at the Super Bowl and your team just scored the winning touchdown. The cheer that, I don't know if I've ever heard a cheer come out of an audience the way that it came out of the audience uh, tonight when they were watching this. And I think that it was just this moment of, of catharsis because everybody's been sitting there wondering, is this gonna happen? Is it not gonna happen? It was this big buildup. And you know, I, I don't wanna get too deep into it, but it feels like it kind of went beyond Spider-Man. It's almost like this is a shared moment that people have been craving for months or years. This idea that we could share this moment of revelation, it, it was a truly magical moment. And I know it seems dumb or silly or whatever when, when I talk about the shared theatrical experience, but these are the kind of things that you don't get any other way. You don't get that at home. Even if you're watching it with five or six people, it really was a moment of movie magic. And it's one that I will certainly never forget. Also, Andrew Garfield was so effing good in this movie. And can, can we just give him an Oscar for the combined force of this performance and the eyes of Tammy Faye and Tick, Tick, Boom and having to deny in every interview that he's in this movie. You're in the new Spider-Man, <laughs> No Way Home. Congratulations. Wait, what? Yes, congratulations. I, I'm not in the film. I, I love Spider-Man. I always have. I was so happy to, to, to have played the part. Is Andrew Garfield playing Spider-Man again? No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I'm not crying out loud. What do people want him to say? Yes? You want him to spoil the biggest surprise that Marvel's been cooking up through many years? Of course he had to lie. Of course he had to say he wasn't going to be in it. Everybody knew that that's what he had to say. He just, he deserves some recognition just on that level, but also... This is maybe my favorite Andrew Garfield performance in any Spider-Man movie, including his own. And again, it's because it's not just Andrew Garfield in a costume popping in to say hi. It would have gotten probably the same kind of cheer, but it would not have affected audiences the same way. It's because we learn more about his character. This is a deeply hurt and damaged person. We see the effect that Gwen's death has had on him, and he mentions the fact that he is filled with rage. He says he stopped pulling punches. This is a pretty violent Spider-Man, and we see that damage, we see that hurt, we see that anger, and we see how this experience affects him. 
and how he can go back to his life having been changed by what he goes through in this movie by meeting these different versions of Spider-Man. So we get this deep well of pain and we get this advancement of his character and we get a bit of a payoff from a a dangling loose end of Amazing Spider-Man 2. But at the same time, we get that Andrew Garfield humor. That's what really set him apart was the effortless humor when he was playing Spider-Man. One of my favorite moments in the in the movie and it's a small performance is when they're kind of mid-fight and they're trying to figure out how to work as a team and just this kind of begrudging whatever when he acknowledges that he's going to be known as Peter 3. It's just such a great little moment and he has so many of those throughout the film but also these great dramatic moments. I just loved him so much in this movie. And then we have Tobey Maguire. Tobey Maguire hasn't been in a live action film since 2014. So first of all, it's just great to see Tobey Maguire again. But the other thing that I love is that, and again, it comes down to the writing, they don't make him play 22. They're not de-aging Tobey Maguire and making him pretend like he just stepped out of the end credits of Spider-Man 3. He's playing the age that he is now, and he plays an important function in this kind of trio of Spider-Men. He's the mentor. I love the interaction between Garfield and Maguire uh, at the Statue of Liberty where they're, you know, they're, Garfield's cracking his back. But then they have like kind of a rap session where he's just like, hey, man, listen, why are you so down on yourself? Let's work on the self-talk. You're Spider-Man. You're amazing. You got to acknowledge that. And Garfield's like, yeah, you know what? I, I, I kind of needed to hear that. It's not just Tobey Maguire playing a Spider-Man. He's playing a version of Spider-Man that is kind of tapping into what the audience is already giving him, which is that seniority. They understand that we as an audience already acknowledge Toby as the senior Spider-Man, as the Spider-Man with the most experience and the most authority, and they wrote his character like that. So they don't just write three identical Spider-Men. They all have a different level. This all leads to what I think might be my favorite scene in any Spider-Man movie. One of my favorite scenes in any Marvel movie, which is this scene on the roof of the school where Peter is just devastated. Ned's there, MJ is there, and they do what they can to console him. But you start with that great shot of looking up and you see Toby and Andrew, Peter and Peter, silhouetted by the moon, perched on the roof. And then they jump down and they counsel him. They help Peter, and I love this idea that Toby says, when when they introduce him, he says, "I, I had a feeling that he needed my help. And what you have here is a Spider-Man in Tom Holland who's having the worst night of his life. And he is helped through it by the only two people that can possibly understand what he's going through because they've already gone through it. They're seeing an echo of themselves and they earnestly are saying, I want to help you through this. And again, because you have these Spider-Men at such different places, Andrew Garfield Spider-Man saying basically, I want to help you through this because you know what? I lost the person that I loved and I see that rage in you. And that's where I am right now. I'm filled with rage. I'm not pulling my punches and I don't want you to become that. And I'm going to help you do that. And then with Toby, with the, with the, with the experience and the time, he says, I want to help you because I did what you want to do now. I went and found the person that killed the person I love the most, my Uncle Ben, and he did die. And you know what it did for me? It did nothing. And I want to help you that way. It was just such a great Spider-Man moment. And I don't mean movie Spider-Man or comic Spider-Man. I just mean character Spider-Man. I think that is one of the best Spider-Man moments across all media, across all decades, across all generations. And it shows that the people in charge of this movie get it. They understood what they needed to do with this film. They understood what they needed to do with these characters, and they absolutely nailed it. 
And I love it when a movie does that. If I seem pumped up, I just, I love that scene so much because I love these movies. I love these characters. And I know sometimes I'm hard on them, uh, but it's because I, I hate it when, when I don't think they're handled well, or I hate it when I see potential there that's wasted, or, or it seems like, oh, if you could have just revised it more or done this a little bit more, and you don't get a whole lot of shots at these things. You don't get a whole lot of shots to do something as big as this. So when you see a movie take a swing this big and they connect and you hear the crack of that bat and it's a home run and you can tell that somebody somewhere said, if we're going to do this, let's do the damn thing. They did the damn thing and I think they did it flawlessly. I'm sure there's a lot of credit to go around, but I really do think you have to thank John Watts, Chris McKenna, Eric Summers, the director of this film, the co-writers of the screenplay, and of course, everybody that contributed to the Spider-Man mythology over the years, because it really is a payoff of, what, 60 plus years almost uh, of Spider-Man storytelling, and yet it still works as well as it did when it was first written. And this really extends to all the scenes that they shared together. I thought that they all were extremely well written, and so much humor in there and humor that makes sense and humor that's born out of this situation. Ned trying to say Peter and then saying Peter Parker. And they're like, yeah, that's the same problem. There's no difference in you saying Peter or Peter Parker. When the three of them all compare villains and Andrew Garfield saying like, I'm really jealous because you got to fight aliens and I fought a Russian guy in a rhino suit. And I wonder if a little bit of that is actually Andrew Garfield coming through to those two actors and expressing a little bit of how he actually feels. And as great as these moments are, I think my personal favorite, and again, it goes back to Andrew Garfield. And, and, and it's a moment that honestly, I think a lot of people saw coming when they saw that Zendaya as MJ was going to be falling in this movie. And you have the shot of Tom Holland's Parker trying to reach out. Even Mara, when she saw the trailer said, well, you know, if Garfield's in the movie, he's going to fly in and he's going to save MJ. And so we kind of know that Garfield's going to swing in and save her. But it's, it's that moment afterwards when he saves her and he says, are you okay? And you see this mixture of like happiness and grief. And again, closure. You're giving this character closure. And for people that loved Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man, even if they didn't love his Spider-Man movies, it's a really meaningful moment. It's a really emotional moment because you see there that he's able to, in some ways, close a chapter in his life and redeem something that he hasn't been able to forgive himself for. It's being able to pay off those moments that makes them being in this movie so special. Ultimately, Maguire and Garfield's Peter Parker's save Holland's Peter Parker from himself and his rage. I could have gone without that sort of fake-out stabbing that Goblin does with Tobey Maguire there. I was pretty sure they weren't going to kill him, although that did lead to a pretty good laugh line about how much pain he was actually in. And then we get the curing of Green Goblin, and again, now the feeling that he gets to go back to his universe and perhaps resume some semblance of a life, maybe with Harry. Maybe keep Harry from going down the road that he went down. This is so much a movie about redemption and isn't that what spider-man is driven by ultimately and coming back to great power and great responsibility the original sin of saying that's not my problem and then something bad coming from it spider-man is driven by redemption and this entire movie is driven by redemption you're using the theme of spider-man to drive the entire film because these folks know what a spider-man movie should be then we get to another gut punch as i mentioned peter with the selfless act going to dr strange and saying if the only way to save the multiverse is to make everyone forget who I am, then make everyone forget who I am. So they're not just forgetting that I'm Spider-Man, they're forgetting who Peter Parker is completely. 
and you have a, a really great emotional goodbye scene, uh, first between Tom Holland and Zendaya. And I really think that Zendaya, first of all, she has grown as an actress over the years since Spider-Man Homecoming. Not that she was ever necessarily bad. I mentioned in my spoiler review, I wasn't crazy about what they did with her character in the beginning. But it was such an emotional goodbye between those two. And you could really feel, and maybe that's a bit of real life creeping in, but you could really feel the love and affection between those two. And then with Jacob Batalon as Ned, they've been a great team since the very beginning. And, you know, I, I don't know what Tom Holland and Jacob Batalon's relationship is in real life, but that was such a touching farewell between two friends. And you feel bad for these characters, but at the same time, you're you're proud in a way of Peter. You're proud of Spider-Man because he's able to take that last step. And it's really the last step to completing his journey, the hero's journey, if you will, uh, and becoming Spider-Man. That's what I'm looking forward to from the future of this franchise is a Spider-Man who has graduated to the next level. He is in many ways more alone than he's ever been, but in other ways he's freer than he's ever been. And you have the homemade costume, the bright red and blue. He doesn't have any tech. He doesn't have any friends. He doesn't have any family, but he is Spider-Man. And that's what I'm looking forward to seeing going forward. One thing that I am really hoping, because the end did remind me a little bit of Fantastic Beasts, is that they don't try to do what that movie did in the sequel, or what Rise of Skywalker did with C-3PO, where you have these big emotional goodbyes to characters because they're going to get their memory wiped or lose their memory. What are you doing there, 3PO? Taking one last look, sir, at my friends. And then it's almost immediately rolled back. Memory restoration complete. There's part of me that actually feels like MJ and Ned should never learn who Spider-Man is. And I know that people love Zendaya and they love Jacob Batalon and they love these characters, but I almost want him to keep that promise because we've done the Spider-Man who says he's going to stay away to protect people with Andrew Garfield and then he doesn't. You're going to make enemies. People will get hurt. Sometimes people closest to you. I almost would like to see him keep that promise and, and carry that pain with him, but also let it drive him as a hero. Do I think they're going to do that? No, I don't think for one second they're going to keep Zendaya and Tom Holland apart. I just kind of hope that they don't undo it immediately or kind of fall into these same cliches that they've already done. And that wraps up the main story. But of course, we do get to the mid credit scene, which is uh, Venom. And listen, I love the Venom movies. I do. I, I, well, I, don't, I wouldn't say I love them, but I certainly like them more than the average person. And I was definitely intrigued at the end of Venom Let There Be Carnage. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen that movie, but they bring him into this universe. Um, but when they set the rules for this one, it really doesn't make any sense why he's there because the only people that are supposed to be in our universe are people who know that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. So Venom obviously hasn't learned that in his universe because there is no Spider-Man. If he's going to go meet Spider-Man, it's going to be a different Spider-Man than any of the ones that we've met. So you could say like, oh, well, he's going to learn in the future that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. But it didn't work that way with anybody else in this movie. So it's really just kind of confusing why he's in this universe in the first place. But part of me is just like, well, you, I can excuse this if they're going to strand him here somehow. And now Eddie is in the MCU universe and we're going to see. But of course, no. Then he just disappears and goes back to his universe. So it's really kind of a fake out that he was even here at the beginning. And it just seems like an excuse to tease the symbiote. Now it's here. Again, I we already have Venom. We've already done the Venom storyline with Toby. I, I really don't want to go through it again with Tom Holland. It's just it feels like we've been there and done that. Maybe Kevin Feige dictated that whole storyline from his desk. 
I don't know, but this kind of feels like the short-sighted franchise mixing that Sony has done in the past, because even with, like, this universe, uh, we saw the trailer for Morbius, and it seems like Morbius shares a universe with Michael Keaton, who's in the MCU universe, and yet he also references Venom, which is not in the same universe. Canonically, we know he's not in the same universe because we just saw him go back to his universe. I just feel like Sony is trying to have their cake and eat it too here, and I hope that there is a hand on the wheel that's just sort of trying to guide them from mixing all of this up because you've, you've just hit a home run, in my opinion, an, an, an A-plus version of what you're trying to do here. Don't mess it up now. The Venom thing was a bit disappointing for me. I wish they would have at least left him here, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Maybe this was all just a a way to get the buzz up about the next Venom movie. I don't know. One quick crowd story to share, which is that after the teaser for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness ran, which is the very last thing, after the whole credits had run, they do the reveal at the end there of the evil, it appears like the evil Doctor Strange, and after it ended, as people were filing out, a guy in my row gets up and he's leaving. He goes like, oh man, I thought it was going to be Mephisto. Well, maybe that was Mephisto. So I think that I may be able to bring to you the first reported instance of Mephisto speculation about the next Marvel property. Maybe somehow, someday, somebody can explain to me this obsession with Mephisto. Is it just because he didn't show up in WandaVision and people thought that he would? Because now it seems like every time there's a character with his back turned to the camera in a Marvel film or a TV show, people think it's Mephisto. I'm not really in any hurry to have the devil show up uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it seems like Mephisto is the name on everyone's lips from here on out. And speaking of crowds, there's one last thing I want to say before I wrap up, because I know it's been quite some time here. Uh, But there is a sentiment amongst many people, uh, and it's not one particular group. You see directors say it in interviews. You see critics say it. You see people on social media say it. You see people uh, that just don't like these movies say it. That these films, that Marvel movies, that MCU movies are the death of cinema. That, that they're killing movies. A lot of think pieces have been written around that concept. And I would say to people that think that, or I would challenge them, go to a screening of this movie this weekend. Just go and watch the crowd watching this movie. Watch the magic that this movie casts, at least the magic that it cast over my audience. And, and it really cast over the, the first audience I saw it with too, which is only half full and all critics who are usually a little less responsive. This is a movie that made people laugh. It made them cry. It made them cheer. At times they were in rapt attention. After the movie was over, we walked out to the lobby and it was buzzing. There were pods and crowds of different people that were talking excitedly about what they'd just seen and comparing notes and talking about this and this moment that they loved and that moment that they loved. There wasn't one person that didn't have a smile on their face. Then when you go outside the theater, there were people lined up waiting to go in to experience it for themselves. Maybe some people that had even gone back in line to go like an amusement park ride to watch the movie a second time. If that isn't the magic of movies, then I don't know what is. If what this movie was able to do with the audience tonight isn't what you want as a filmmaker, or isn't what you want as a film goer, then I don't really know what else can be said. I think that there is an inclination from a lot of people to sort of turn their nose up at popular entertainment and say that it doesn't count or it's brainless stuff for the masses. And some of it is. Some of it is. But a lot of it isn't. I don't think there's any better endorsement for why movie theaters should stay alive and should stay in business, and to be quite frank, are staying alive 
and are staying in business than movies like this. Movies made by people that care. And yes, it has a $200 million budget. And yes, it's about comic book heroes. But it also has heart and emotion and humanity and all the things that you want in a great movie experience. So to all the people that would thumb their nose at movies like this and write off an entire genre, mostly sight unseen, as saying that they don't understand movies or that movies would be better off if they aren't around or that they're the death of cinema, I would say to you, it's actually the complete opposite. It's movies like this that are keeping cinema alive and have kept cinema alive for a hundred years. I love this movie. If you didn't love this movie, that's perfectly okay. But if you haven't seen it and you want to just write these things off as brainless, mindless things, go see it. Go experience it. And I think you might come out with a different opinion. Thanks so much for watching this spoiler review of Spider-Man No Way Home. I will continue releasing reviews throughout the week. And if you want to see even more of what I'm up to, you can check me out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dan Merle. Thanks for sticking with me through this very long Spider-Man spoiler talk. I hope you enjoyed the film as much as I did. We have a lot of great stuff still on tap for the rest of the year. And it does seem like... The theaters are on their way back. This movie-going experience is on their way back. And even if it gets interrupted again, I think what this movie has proven is that you can't kill the magic of movies. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you next time. Bye. 